Welcome to Saints. In this podcast, we'll be discovering and discussing fascinating insights to topics and events found in Saints, the story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the latter days. This new four-volume narrative is a history of the Restoration. You can also read it and all the material we'll be discussing today on LDS.org or on your Gospel Library app. And now, Saints. Thank you for joining us for the Saints podcast on the Mormon Channel. Our show is all about the new narrative history of the church called Saints, the story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the Latter Days. I'm Ben Godfrey, and today I'm joined by Matthew C. Godfrey, a managing historian and general editor of the Joseph Smith Papers. Welcome, Matt. Thanks, Ben. Good to be here. appreciate you having me on. Also joining us today, we have Sarah Eyring, who works here at the Mormon Channel. She's recently had the opportunity to read Saints Volume 1, and she'll be sharing her thoughts and questions. Welcome, Sarah. I'm really happy to be here, too. We should mention at the outset here that Matt and I do share a last name. We do. And uh, we, we have discovered a common ancestor several generations back, but before uh, working here together, we didn't actually know each other. But That's right. We, we do share the last name and the same Cache Valley heritage. Though. Ab- absolutely. So. <laughs> I'm glad to have you here with us, Matt. In previous episodes, we focused on a single chapter. Today, we're actually going to talk about three different chapters. Chapter 16, which is called Only a Prelude. Chapter 17, Though the Mob May Kill Us, and Chapter 18, The Camp of Israel. In our previous episodes, we have the saints gathering in Missouri, um, and the Missourians are not super happy about what's going on. Can you tell us a little bit about the, the aspect of slavery? There's a lot of the saints coming down from the northern states. They're not slave states. They probably have feelings about the whole slave question. How is this interpreted, or what are the neighbors thinking about the saints and their feelings about slavery in the South? Yeah, it's a it's a great question because it gets into kind of the background behind the members who are moving to Missouri at this time. And it certainly is one of the factors that leads to the discord that we have between uh, those non-Mormons living in Jackson County and the saints who are moving there. It's not the only point of conflict that they have. They're very disturbed by how many Mormons are coming to the to the area. Right. They're worried that their own political power will be dwarfed because they'll just be outnumbered um, by the Latter-day Saints. But the slavery question really comes into focus with an editorial that William W. Phelps publishes in the Evening and the Morning Star. Uh, Phelps is the editor of the newspaper, and he writes an editorial that talks a little bit about how he uh, it, it, he's he's kind of giving warnings to uh, African Americans who might be members of the church and interested in gathering to Zion, and so he's trying to kind of lay out what the situation is. The problem is when this editorial is read, the Missourians interpret it as if Phelps is encouraging free African Americans to move to Jackson County, which is something that they don't want to see happen because it is a slave state. They believe very strongly in slavery. They worry that if you get free blacks moving to the area, that there could be potential for slave rebellions, just as had occurred just a couple years prior to that in 1831 when Nat Turner rose up uh, in Virginia and killed numerous uh, white people there. So they're concerned about that. And so they, they kind of misinterpret what Phelps is trying to say 
here. And that's really where the slavery question comes in to the conflict. So what were the attitudes of the members about slavery at the time? That's a great question. Uh, I I wish we had more knowledge about how uh, most members felt about it. Most of them were from the North where slavery had been abolished. And so most of them probably did not believe in slavery. But we have to remember as well that at the time, you know, this is a very racist period in the history of the United States. And most whites believe that African-Americans were inferior to them. And I'm sure uh, many church members held these beliefs as well. Uh, we do know that Joseph Smith kind of had a evolving or developing opinion about slavery. I think Joseph was very pragmatic, and when the saints were trying to live in Missouri, a slave state, he tried not to speak against slavery. Uh, he tried not to champion abolition. But later on, after they're kicked out of Missouri, when they're living in Illinois, he becomes much more attuned to the idea of abolition. And when he runs for president of the United States in 1844, he actually talks about how slavery should be abolished. So his views develop over time. That's interesting. So slavery is one of these things that are sort of bothering the neighbors in Missouri. We also have the fact that, like you were saying, that there's worry they'll vote as a block and they'll lose political power. They kind of stick to themselves and buy from each other. And not to mention they have these unique beliefs, as we talked about in our previous episode. They now believe in more than one heaven. There's this this vision that seems to be so different than the Christianity that most of them know. So the neighbors are kind of up in arms. It, It was surprising to me to learn how organized the opposition to the saints really was. And if we can, I'd like to just listen to one little section here from the book that talks about this organization. Town leaders soon met to take action against the newcomers. Samuel and others listed their complaints against the saints and presented the statement to the people of independence. The document declared the town leaders' intention to drive the saints from Jackson County by any means necessary. They appointed July 20th for a meeting at the courthouse to decide what to do with the saints. Hundreds of Jackson County residents signed their names to the statement. I mean, that just kind of blew me away that, I mean, hundreds of people are signing a document at the courthouse. I mm-hmm. I had always had this kind of picture that was a bunch of rowdy drunk guys at the bar who, who you know, lit the torches and went out and burned some barns down. Right. That's not what it was like. No, I, I mean, we often refer to these groups as mobs. And I think when you use that terminology, mob, then it does conjure up this image of kind of a drunken group of, you know, men running around, you know, doing whatever damage they they might do. We actually have tried to refer to them more as vigilantes because it is a more organized thing than a mob would portray. I mean, really, they're drawing on kind of a long tradition of vigilanteism in the United States um, at the time that especially if there is a group that is impeding on the majority. The majority at this time felt like they could take, at times, violent action against these groups for the what, what they considered to be for the betterment of society. So they decide to destroy the press. Is that right? That's their, yes. that's their object. And what was the press being used for at the time? So there were a couple purposes for the press. Um, as I mentioned, William W. Phelps was publishing the Evening and the Morning Star, the church's monthly newspaper there. 
He was also preparing the Book of Commandments, which was a book of kind of a compilation of Joseph Smith's revelations. He'd been working on that since 1832. Um, He was in the last stages of printing that, but it was not quite yet finished. Hmm. Let's listen to another little clip here from the book about Sally Phelps, William Phelps' wife, (coughs) and her experience with the mob, with with these vigilantes um, coming to the to the press. Once the door broke open, armed men rushed into the house and dragged Sally and the children into the street. They threw the family's furniture and belongings out the front door and smashed windows. Some of the attackers climbed up to the second floor of the printing office and dumped type and ink onto the floor as other men began to tear the building down. Standing with her children huddled around her, Sally watched as men broke the second-floor window of the printing office and tossed out paper and type. They then heaved the printing press out the window and sent it crashing to the ground. This is crazy time. You know, this is pretty violent stuff. Just imagining Sally standing there with her kids and they're throwing their furniture and smashing the windows. This was a pretty traumatic experience. Yeah, and I think we often forget when we tell the story of the printing press being destroyed that the printing office wasn't just the place where William W. Phelps had his print shop. It was also the Phelps's residence. They lived there. So this is akin to someone, you know, which the mob also did, going into someone's home, uh, ripping them from their residence. Uh, I'm, I'm sure it was quite traumatic both for Sally, for the children, to see their possessions destroyed, to have their home invaded in such a violent manner. Some would be familiar with the story uh, related to this of Mary Elizabeth Rollins and Caroline Rollins. Can you describe that story to us and also tell us a little bit about Vina, who is also part of the story, who other people might not know about until reading this narrative? Sure, yeah. So, as I mentioned, the Book of Commandments was kind of in its final stages of production. It was not yet bound. There were pages from it that were just lying loose in the print shop. And so some of those who went to destroy the print shop took those pages. They were scattering the pages in the street. And Mary Elizabeth Rollins Leitner and her sister saw this happening, and it disturbed them. You know, they're they're teenagers at, at this time, but one of the great things about Mary is that uh, she, she was 15. Three years prior to this, she had come across the Book of Mormon when a copy was left with her family. And she had immediately just grasped the Book of Mormon as the Word of God. Uh, she read it all night, the first night that she had it. And this is as, as a 12-year-old. Wow. Um, and it was just a book that really spoke to her. So she had a very strong testimony of Joseph Smith as a prophet. And I think to see his revelations so wantonly scattered in the streets was really something that uh, disturbed her. And so she and her sister gathered up these pages, as many as they could carry in their arms. They ran. Members of the the mob saw them. They pursued them. So they ran into a cornfield where they hid until they stopped uh, looking for them. So it's kind of an interesting story. That really is. And then Vienna Jakes, she was uh, an older woman who she, she was a pretty remarkable woman. So she was a single sister um, who had been baptized in the Boston area in 1831. She had then decided that she would consecrate her money to the church and move to Zion. 
And so she had a sizable amount of money. It, it exceeded $1,000, which doesn't sound like a lot to us today, but back then was a considerable sure. sum of money. And she gave it to Joseph Smith in Kirtland. She then went on to Missouri to gather with the saints, and she was a witness to this violence as well. And again, it was something that was, was very disturbing to her. Um, she heard a, a mob, uh, one of the mobbers tell her, basically, this is just a prelude of what's going to happen to you. In fact, let's just listen to a little clip. This is one of my favorite parts of the chapter because I just love Vienna Jakes and I love I love her faithfulness and her courage. Um, mm-hmm. She was not a fearful woman. Uh, so let's just listen to a little uh, a bit here. Nearby, a convert named Vienna Jacques was collecting scattered pages from the Book of Commandments off the street. Vienna had consecrated her considerable savings to help build up Zion and now everything was falling apart. As she clutched the loose pages, a man from the mob came up to her and said, This is only a prelude to what you have to suffer. He pointed to Edward's haggard figure. There goes your bishop, tarred and feathered. Vienna looked up and saw Edward limping away. Only his face and the palms of his hands were not covered in tar. Glory to God, she exclaimed. He will receive a crown of glory for tar and feathers. I think this is a very telling picture, a little window into who Vienna Jakes was. What a statement. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, important to note as well that Vienna stayed faithful to the church her entire life. Uh, she came out to the Salt Lake Valley with the saints. Uh, she died at a quite quite a, an advanced age, but she was true to the gospel her whole life. And I think this story kind of highlights the depth of her testimony. And I just point out to our listeners, she's one of the few women who are named by name in the Doctrine and Covenants. You'll have to look for that. There's a little Easter egg for you to go find in yeah. your Doctrine and Covenants. Um, she's one of only two women to be named specifically. The great lady with a great uh, a story of faith for us. Well, as we, as we move along in these chapters, it gets pretty ugly in Jackson County. The members are forced from the county. Joseph is discouraged. He's trying to figure out, why is this happening? I mean, the Lord told him this is supposed to be Zion. Can you tell us a little bit about a letter that he wrote that maybe explains what he was feeling at this time? Sure, yeah. I think we need to realize just how traumatic this expulsion from Jackson County was just as kind of background to this, because like you said, God had commanded the saints to build the city of Zion there. The saints truly believed that they would build that city, they'd build a temple, Jesus Christ would return, and the millennium would would commence. And so when they're expelled from Jackson County, I think it's very troubling for many of the saints because they're wondering, why didn't God protect us? And Joseph himself is wondering about this. Right. And so when he hears news about this, he gets letters from Edward Partridge from Missouri asking Joseph, what are we supposed to do? What do you want us to do? And Joseph's wondering the same thing. And I think it's very interesting because he writes a letter back to Edward Partridge on December 10th, 1833, where he tells Edward that he's wondering, first of all, why God allowed this to happen. And second of all, what needs to happen for Zion to be redeemed, for the saints to regain their land in Jackson County? And he says very specifically in this letter that he's asked the Lord those two questions, and the Lord will not answer me. 
And think about that. This is Joseph Smith, someone who has had the grand vision of the afterlife, you know, section 76 in the Doctrine and Covenants, the first vision, translated the Book of Mormon, and he's saying, God's not letting me know. I think it's a great testimony to us that God operates with his prophets the same way that he does with you and me, that sometimes we have to struggle to find the answers. But the great thing about this is that six days after Joseph writes this letter, on the evening of December 16, 1833, Joseph receives a revelation, which is now section 101 in the Doctrine and Covenants, that tells him the answer to those two questions. You read that section, you'll see that the Lord explains why he allowed the saints to be kicked out of Jackson County and what the saints would need to do to redeem their land there. And so Joseph just had to wait. The Lord had told him, be still and know that I am God. And Joseph had to wait until it was the Lord's time to reveal those answers. It is a testimony builder to me, that letter, because if Joseph were what his critics would say, that he is making it up, then he'd just make it up. Right. There's no need to say, I don't have an answer. Right. But he's willing to say, I'm not getting an answer. Yeah. And to me, that that's just another testimony, another piece of the puzzle for me to understand who Joseph was as a, as a prophet. And it gives me hope too, because like many of us, I'm sure many of our listeners, there are lots of days when I didn't get the answer that I wanted and I'm still asking and I'll, I'll have to keep asking. And I take comfort in that revelation of be still and know that I am God. Well, Joseph moves along. The members are kicked out of uh, their homes but there comes a time when there's perhaps another answer. Can you tell us a little bit about what, what we might know as Zion's camp, but at the time I think they called it the camp of Israel? Yes, that's right. So as I mentioned, uh, the revelation that Joseph receives that section 101 describes what the saints need to do to redeem Zion, and it does so by giving a parable to the saints. It's the parable of the nobleman whose vineyard is overrun by the enemy, and the nobleman tells a servant that he has to call up the strength of his house to go and redeem that land. So that's given in December of 1833. In February of 1834, after Parley P. Pratt and Lyman White had gone to Kirtland from Missouri to seek Joseph's counsel and the counsel of other church leaders as to what they were supposed to do. Should they stay in Clay County, where many of them have gone? Should they sell their land in Jackson County? Uh, just exactly what should they do? Uh, Joseph receives another revelation that again refers to this parable and says, Joseph, you are the servant. You need to call up the strength of the Lord's house, and you need to gather together a group of hopefully 500 men, but certainly no fewer than 100 men, to go to Missouri, travel there, and help the saints regain their land. And so Joseph and a few other church leaders travel through the eastern United States in March and April of 1834, gathering recruits for what will be known as the Camp of Israel or Zion's Camp today. And the camp really had a very specific objective in mind. So the saints had been told by some government officials in Missouri that Governor Daniel Dunklin of Missouri was willing to call up the state militia to escort the saints back to their land in Jackson County. The problem was he couldn't keep the militia called up after that time. He, he couldn't just keep them on, on guard to help the saints out. 
But if the Saints could come up with their own force, then once they were on their lands in Jackson County, that force of Saints could protect them from being expelled again. So that was the idea behind Zion's Camp. Zion's Camp was supposed to go to Missouri. They would ask Governor Dunklin to call up the militia to restore them to their lands, and then the members of Zion's Camp would stay in Jackson County to prevent the Saints from being expelled again. They're kind of like a police force coming to, to help protect them. Yes, exactly. So that's really what the purpose was. The problem was that once the Saints got to Missouri, uh, Orson Hyde and Parley P. Pratt are sent to talk to Governor Dunklin. And when they get there and talk to him, he says that he's not willing to call up the state militia. Part of the reason for that is that there were peace negotiations going on between Jackson County citizens and members of the church in Missouri. And Dunklin may have wanted to see how that played out before doing anything like calling up a militia. But with him not willing to call up the militia, there wasn't much that the saints could do. They had been hearing rumors about, you know, four or 500 people that had gathered in Jackson County, not just from Jackson County, but from other counties as well, that would prevent any of the saints from going back on their land. So Joseph knew that if they crossed the Missouri River back into Jackson County, there was going to be bloodshed. So there really wasn't much that they could do once Governor Dunklin wasn't willing to call up that state militia. So what was this Camp of Israel um, comprised of in terms of demographics? Was it all men? Were there women, children? Who, who was asked to go? There were some women and children. Uh, it was mainly men. So there's actually two contingents. There's a contingent that leaves from Kirtland, Ohio, that Joseph Smith leads. There's another contingent that is recruited by Hiram Smith and Lyman White that leaves from Michigan, and then they join up in Missouri. So when, the, when Joseph's contingent leaves Kirtland, there's only about 120 people in it. Wow. Most of them are men. Uh, once they unite with the contingent from Michigan Territory, there's about 205 men and then another 25 or so women and children who are with them. It doesn't seem like a lot of people. It's not a lot. And again, it's, it's not what the Lord wanted. The Lord said, please, you know, you need to get 500 men to do this. They barely get over the bare minimum that the Lord told them, you know, don't do it if you don't have at least 100 men. So you can tell that there's not a whole lot of support for this. And that's a key reason why uh, they're not able to redeem Zion either. So the revelation that Joseph gets in June of 1834, which is section 105 in the Doctrine and Covenants, that tells him that it's no longer required of them to redeem Zion, says very specifically that the church hasn't supported this expedition. It talks about how they don't have the support of the different branches of the church. And I interpret that to mean that there was not enough money raised for it. There were not enough people who volunteered to accompany the group. So who knows, maybe if they were able to get 500 people, things would have turned out differently. So how did it turn out when, when they got to where they were hoping to end up? So uh, the governor wasn't willing to call out the militia. Uh, Joseph continued on towards Clay County. On June 22nd, he received the revelation saying it's no longer required to redeem Zion. So he begins to disband the camp. Uh, as this disbandment is occurring, there's an outbreak of cholera that happens among Yikes. members of the camp, yeah. And it ends up killing uh, 13 members of the camp and two other saints in Missouri, um, including the young daughter of John Murdoch and Sidney Gilbert and uh, this daughter of John Murdoch both die as a result of the cholera epidemic. Wow. 
these men and, and some women and children that have been traveling in the camp, just from purely a kind of historical perspective, it would seem like this feels like a failure. Mm-hmm. Like we set out to go down, to reclaim our lands, and we didn't get it. When this revelation is received that the camp can be disbanded, how do, how do the people take that? And do they remain faithful? Do they continue on? Or what, what's the impact? What's the long-term kind of impact of Zion's camp? Well, it's very interesting. So when that revelation is received, there are different reactions to it. There are some members of the camp who are thrilled. There's one young man, uh, Nathan Baldwin, who was 22 years old at the time. And he recollected that when he was asked to go on the camp and take a gun with him, he thought, that's totally foreign to me. He'd, he'd never handled a gun before. And so when Joseph tells him that they have this revelation that they no longer have to go into Jackson County, he's totally relieved. He said it was one of the most pleasing things that, that he had ever heard. But there's other members of the camp who are quite angry about it, and some who fall away from the church because they're not going to go into Jackson County. I think what's really interesting, though, about this is that the vast majority of participants in the camp of Israel regarded that experience as one of the best experiences of their lives. If you look at their reminiscences that they write, you know, 30, 40, 50 years after the fact, they all point to the camp of Israel as a time in their life where they were privileged to be with the prophet Joseph and where they really discovered that God was with them. And so, yes, on the face of it, it seems like a failure because the objectives weren't accomplished. But for those who were actually in the camp, it was anything but a failure, and it was a time of great growth in their own testimonies. I also think it's interesting that uh, about a year, not, not quite a year after the camp of Israel disbands, Joseph calls the first 12 apostles in our dispensation, as well as the first members of the 70. And of those uh, leaders that are selected at that time, eight of the 12 apostles were members of the camp of Israel, and every one of the 70 who were called at that time had also been a member of the camp of Israel. So this really seems to be a time where Joseph is able to see who the true leaders are in the church, uh, who will be willing to sacrifice things for the sake of the church. And so I think in that way, you can see it as a success as well, because it does become kind of a proving ground for future church leaders. It's amazing the the faith that they demonstrate by continuing forward, even after a seeming failure, but also the way that the Lord works to take this seeming failure and turn it into a training ground for the leaders that will take the church forward. So we're, we're about out of time, Matt, but I, there was one kind of humorous story here that I want our listeners, if they haven't read the chapters, to know about. And that is, can you tell us a little bit about Sylvester Smith, no relation to Joseph Smith? Right. Can you tell us a little bit about Sylvester Smith and his dog? You bet. Uh, so Sylvester... Uh, was a member of the Kirtland High Council who volunteered to go on the Camp of Israel expedition. But he was kind of uh, one of the main malcontents on the expedition. Now, 
they didn't always have an easy time as they were traveling. There were times where they didn't have enough food. There were times when they didn't have enough water to drink. Tons um, of mosquitoes. There's lots of mosquitoes. They're walking as many as, you know, 30 or 40 miles a day. So you have blisters on your feet. Many camp members took all this in stride, didn't complain. Sylvester was not one of those. <laughs> he complained constantly throughout the journey and was kind of a thorn in Joseph Smith's side. And there are several examples of this. Joseph, who had a guard dog with him, Sylvester came into camp. The dog began barking at Sylvester. Uh, he may have tried to bite Sylvester. We're not sure about that. And Sylvester got upset about this. He went to Joseph and told Joseph that if his dog kept barking at him, uh, he'd shoot Joseph's dog. And Joseph didn't take too kindly to that, and they had a bit of a disagreement there. There's another time in the journey, too, where there's another disagreement between Joseph and Sylvester, and perhaps being a little fed up with Sylvester at this point, Joseph threw the camp bugle at Sylvester. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, later, Brigham Young would say, no, he didn't really throw the bugle. He was mad, so he threw it on the ground, and then it bounced and hit Sylvester. But I think he really threw it at, at <laughs> Sylvester because Sylvester had it coming. But again, this is just kind of one of those incidents where you know, certainly not everyone is going to be happy with the journey, and Joseph has to deal with these things. And so it's kind of something that helps him and his leadership develop his own leadership style and leadership skills on the journey. Thank you for sharing that. Again, I love the fact that in Saints, we learn about the very faithful, the testimony building, but we also see these are real people. And you know, if somebody threatens to kill my dog, I'd probably throw a bugle at him too. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Matt, for sharing that story. I, I love the fact that Saints allows us to see real people and the emotions that they have. And uh, Joseph was a real person. So were the other people that were on Zion's camp and throughout the story. Thank you for joining us today, Matthew Godfrey, as well as Sarah Eyring. And thanks for all of you out there listening and tuning in. To learn more about Saints, you can always go to saints.lds.org where you can check out the latest topics, updates, videos, and more. You can also read or listen to Saints in the Church History section of the Gospel Library app. Finally, to download this episode and to subscribe, visit mormonchannel.org. I'm Ben Godfrey. Thank you for thanks listening. Thanks for joining us today for Saints. And don't forget to read more of this historical narrative on lds.org or on your Gospel Library app. Join us again for our next episode, where we'll once again discover fascinating insights of church history found in Saints, the story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the Latter Days. Thank you.